Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. All right, thanks, Justin. I appreciate that. You're out there, brother. Uh, everybody else, if you've got a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and while you turn there, I will pray briefly. Father God, would you please bless the reading, the teaching, the understanding, the application of your word uh, to discipleship and everyone that is hearing this. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, my guess is that most of us here, especially after Tanya's talk this morning, we're committed to the idea of discipling the next generation. And let me just give you my personal kind of definition for discipleship. Uh, I think it's going to be up there. It would be discipleship is a more mature believer mentoring a less mature believer for multiplication. So some people draw a strong distinction between discipleship, mentoring. I'm not doing that this morning for this purpose. This morning, they're synonymous, okay? Listen to what uh, Billy Graham said. Christ, I think, set the pattern. He spent most of his time with 12 men. He didn't spend it with a great crowd. In fact, every time he had a great crowd, it seems to me that there weren't too many results. The great results, it seems to me, came in his personal interview, he means conversation, and in the time he spent with his 12. Here's Robert Coleman, who wrote the great book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. We fail not because we do not try to do something, but because we let our little efforts become an excuse for not doing more. The nearsighted objective of popular recognition generally took precedent over the long-range goal of reaching the world. So here's what I want to do this morning briefly, is give you seven pitfalls of discipleship. That even if you're saying, I'm committed to discipleship, I want to do discipleship, there are pitfalls that we can fall into unwittingly that can negate much of the impact of our discipleship in the long run. Okay, so we're going to look at two of the greatest disciples of all time, John Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles there, look at John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. The next day, this is John the Baptist. He saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then skip down to verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The first, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So here's the first pitfall that I want us to notice. Sometimes we can have too much content 
and not enough repetition. Did you see what happened with John the Baptist? The first day he's standing there with his two disciples, John who will become the apostle, and Andrew, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And did you see what happened? Nothing. That sounds like a lot of my discipleship groups, right? You show up, maybe you think you give a great point, a great illustration, a great story, and they're just dead, right? It's like, man, do you need some coffee or something and an IV? But I just feel like I gave you my best and I'm getting nothing. Don't be discouraged. You're in good company. Happened to John the Baptist. So what did he do? Give up? No. The next day, he saw Jesus coming again. And again, he said, hey guys, I'm telling you, there's the one I've been preaching about. And they left John to go follow Jesus. Sometimes we think that if we want to be a great discipler, that we have to have some great theology and we want to teach all this kind of esoteric philosophy and systematic theology and end times kind of stuff. The best discipleship is often just going deeper in the basics. Let me do a little crowd participation part. How many of you have ever been told at least once in your life, if you're a Christian, you ought to read some of the Bible every single day? Let's just see a show of hands. All right. I think that's pretty much everybody. How many of you, after you heard that important point one time, started doing it and you never missed since then? Anyone? If so, I'd like to meet you afterwards right over here. Okay, just come meet me because I've never had anybody say yes. Think about how important that is. Think about how many different times someone had to teach you that, remind you of that, pray that for you before it really got into your life and you said, I'm actually going to do it. I've got the conviction. I'm going to stick with it. The best discipleship is repetitive. Okay. The second pitfall we can fall into is too much isolation and not enough cross-pollination. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we think if we're going to be a great discipler, it needs to be like this secret ninja society, right? And we just get our two men and we pull them aside like a, to the mountain getaway. And it's all just they're getting all of me. Well, if you do that, they're going to get all your strengths. They're also going to get all your weaknesses. And notice, the greatest discipler of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ, He built his discipleship group off of the movement that John the Baptist had already started. John the Baptist was having a revival and Jesus came in and dovetailed on top of it. So whether it's your local college ministry that you're a part of or your local church, don't be afraid to be a part of that movement because the catalytic events, things like this can often enhance your discipleship and make it a lot better if it was just you in isolation trying to do it all on your own. The third Too much teaching and not enough interaction. This ought to be really instructive for us. The first time Jesus met two of his disciples that we know of, what was the first thing he did? He asked them a question. He didn't instantly start teaching. And he was the greatest teacher of all time. Listen, teaching is not bad, right? This is not the anti-sermon sermon. sermon. When you, some of you probably flew here. If you were getting onto the plane and the pilot just said, hey, buddy, I have a question. Uh, are you more passionate about the right wing or the left wing of the plane? It's like, no, I like both wings of the plane, right? Do I have to choose? And it's the same thing. You don't have to pit upfront teaching, small group teaching, against the more interactive dialogue asking questions. I'm just saying there is a tendency to want to drift towards just more teaching, more podcasts, more conferences, even our small group discipleship can turn into sometimes, hey, sit down and take notes because I'm really smart and I know what I'm talking about. And in my experience in America, most people are not lacking good content, right? It's at their fingertips. They can go listen to the best preachers in the world anytime they want to. 
What they need in discipleship is more of a discussion, more of the Q&A, more of the application, massaging the truth into the DNA of their life. Most believers, in my experience, are not good. I don't care if they hear the best sermon in the world. They're not good at walking away and figuring out how to apply it to their life. They need somebody to be there with them to wrestle through it. There's a guy named Richard Baxter, English Puritan, hundreds of years ago. And supposedly one of the greatest authors and uh, preachers that the Puritans produced. But I read something one time where he said, There have been people that have sat under my preaching for 20 years. Now listen, back then they didn't have lake houses, right? They just went to church. That was the most fun thing they had to do. 20 years coming to church. And when he would have a one-on-one conversation, he would realize they didn't even understand the most basic things. Like the doctrine of justification by faith. Okay? So part of what he did, all his preaching, all his writing, is twice a week he would go visit people in their homes. And it was like his small group discipleship, asking them questions, making sure they understood. Listen to this quote. I have found by experience that some ignorant persons, that sounds like our D groups, right? Who have been so long unprofitable hearers have got more knowledge and remorse of conscience, conviction, in half an hour's close discourse than they did from 10 years public preaching. Right? Listen, that's not somebody from the Navigators or Campus Crusade saying that. That's a Puritan saying sometimes if I can just get one-on-one with somebody for 30 minutes, it's better than 10 years of sermons. What we do is important, guys, when we get into the small group interaction with them. Another thing, he ministered in the same town for a long time, said he had 600 converts from his ministry. But here's what really stood out. Not one backslider. Who of us can boast that? Right? That we've never had anybody fall away. Discipleship done well keeps people walking with Christ for the long haul. Not always, right? Even Jesus had Judas, but for the majority. Okay? Here's Tim Keller. Listen to this. Maybe one of the greatest teachers of our day. We do not find a classroom relationship between Jesus and his students. Nor did his students relate this way with one another. Instead, he created a community of learning and practice in which there was plenty of time to work out truth in discussion, dialogue, and application. It's so important to have this small group time. Confucius, just figured I'd throw this quote in there. Tell me, and I will forget. Show me, and I may remember. Involve me, and I will understand. That's what we need to be doing in discipleship. The fourth pitfall. There's too much distance and not enough self-revelation. And let me just say this. The longer you're in ministry, the easier this pitfall is to fall into. Right? You're busy. you got a lot of stuff going on. You're managing more people. You're traveling more. So it's like your discipleship becomes one hour at the coffee shop. That's not bad, but it certainly is not best. Notice the first thing Jesus did. Come to my house. Come hang out. And they went there and they stayed there the rest of the day. They did normal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what happens in John chapter 2? What's coming next? He takes his first D group to a party. They went to a wedding. They were just doing normal life together. That's how Christ... Listen, guys, it should be shocking to us. The God of the universe came to earth. He only had three years of full-time ministry. And he spent so much of that time just going deep, life on life, with 12 people. It's a great model and pattern for ministry. 
Okay. Um, let me tell you a story. I grew up in a, a very godly home, not a perfect home, but I had a godly family. And uh, my dad led me to Christ. And they, they were serious about family devotions. Okay. And they tried so many different things. I remember at one point my dad somewhere found the entire Bible in comic strip version. And he would try to read those to us at breakfast while we had our Pop-Tarts. And we're like, no, be quiet, Dad. We don't want to hear this. You know, we're tired. And then he would switch and he would find something that he had these one set of books that it would tell a Bible story. And then it would tell a story from the animal kingdom. And it was somehow supposed to relate. And he'd read that to us before we went to bed at night. One of those stories... It's supposedly a true story. There was a little boy, and his parents let him have a pet bat. I don't know what was wrong with those parents, but they did, okay? And, and the story was that this boy also had a box fan in his room. And when he would turn the fan on low, the bat could fly through the box fan. And then he would turn it on medium, and the bat could fly through the box fan. And then he would turn it on high, and the bat's internal sonar, radar, whatever, would not let it fly through the box fan, okay? Now, you're thinking, what does that have to do with this talk? What I'm thinking is, what does that have to do with the Bible? And, and I'm going to say something, and you're going to think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. From all the years of all my mom and dad's family devotions, that's all I remember. Okay? I, I've told them this. Okay? I'm, listen, I'm sure there's a bedrock of Bible truth somewhere deep in my soul. If, if you have kids, keep doing family devotions. Okay? I'm not against them. But I'm just telling you, I'm not, and listen, I've got a good memory, all right? You know what I do remember? If I woke up early enough, my mom and dad read the Bible every single morning. Anytime that we had a big decision to make as a family, we're going to gather around and pray about it. Like when my dad was spanking me, he's quoting the verse that I just, right? I mean, the, the, the first passage I memorized was Ephesians 6 because I remember it so painfully. My dad coming home and telling stories about trying to share the gospel with somebody, like convicts on the side of the highway. A homeless war veteran sitting in a wheelchair selling pencils when we left church to go to country club to eat lunch. And my dad's like, I'm going to pull over and ask this guy to go eat with us. And we're like, no, don't do it, Dad. <laughs> More is caught than taught. I led a mission team uh, for the summer to New Zealand about 20 years ago, my wife and I bunch of college students, and we had one child at that time. He was about a year and a half, two years old, and he had asthma, and something in the atmosphere or whatever, the climate of New Zealand, did not cheat all with him, and so he had some kind of respiratory thing going on for months, and he would wheeze really bad, and then he would just vomit all over the place. It was not a fun summer, and this was your first kid, right? If it had been the fourth kid, we'd be like, ah, you'd be fine, right? <laughs> first kid, mom is in tears basically all summer. At the end of the summer, right, campus is let out. we got a couple extra days. We go to, like, this little mountain retreat. We're going to try to have, like, a little debrief time in the summer. And we get down there, and there's a blizzard. I mean, like, literally a blizzard, okay? Can't go outside. Can't really do anything. And the only – we're staying in some youth hostel. The only place we could really find to eat was this uh, roadside bar and grill. Now, so we take our mission team there asthmatic baby and uh you know this was they didn't they didn't have no smoking policies 20 plus years ago in new zealand so we're in this bar lots of smoke my son sounds like he's about to cough up a lung okay my wife is over there on the verge of tears it's been a long hard summer and so i go and crack a window again blizzard outside it was fresh air but it was also frigid air now coming into the bar all the students, like, they love my son. They're like, well, it's fine. We'll put on our winter jackets. The New Zealanders did not think it was cool that the Americans had showed up at their bar and grill and decided they would open the window. 
and they're kind of giving us some lip and stuff. And I'm like, hey, I'm sorry. We're going to get our food to go, my son. And not much compassion. And one woman kind of said, well, that's why you don't bring a baby to a bar, you stupid yank. Okay? Now, that's my best impression of a New Zealander female accent. If, if I blew it, I'm sorry. Now, here's the thing. Internally, I, I, was, I was boiling mad. But I'm like, man, I'm, a, I'm leading a mission team. I can't get in a bar fight, right? <laughs> so I, I just, I just kind of sat there and I just kind of said, I know, I'm sorry. And I had one guy on my team, and he's a little country. Uh, this, this is a team from Alabama, okay? And uh, he leaned over to me and said, hey, man, I never, I never hit a woman, but I'll take care of this if you want me to. And uh, I said, no. I said, just you know, calm down. We're going to leave. At the end of the summer, when we were back in America, I had multiple students come up and say to me, hey, the most impactful thing for the entire two months in all New Zealand was the way you responded to the lady in the bar. Now listen, that's not because I read The Fuel and the Flame and there was a chapter called Baby in the Bar Strategy. <laughs> right? You, you can't plan this stuff. You've got to be doing life on life in such a way that it just naturally happens. My first about four and a half years uh, on campus ministry, my wife and I served at the University of North Alabama, okay, state school. And so we were on there four and a half years. So when we were leaving, we still knew almost every student that had come to Christ, been involved in ministry. And I kind of did a survey trying to see what was the major thing that God used in your life, right? And you, I'll be honest, I was probably kind of hoping they were going to say something about my teaching or something like that. No one did. But what a lot of people did say something about was just being in your home, just seeing your family. Now, this is not a marriage conference, but the first three years of my marriage, my wife and I, we fought like cats and dogs. I'm talking yelling, screaming, right? We're both pretty type A. But what hit me was we always made up. We stayed together, still together, right? Last 20 years have been pretty good. But most of the students we were ministering to, and this was 20 plus years ago, guys, they came from broken, messed up homes. The parents didn't stay together. So yeah, getting them the gospel was important, but also letting them see a family that was real and messy and fault, but they stayed together, life-changing. Listen to this quote by Tim Keller. The chief way in which we should disciple people is through community. Growth in grace, wisdom, and character does not happen primarily in classes and instruction through large worship gatherings or even in solitude. Most often growth happens through deep relationships and in communities where the implications of the gospel are worked out cognitively and worked in practically in ways no other setting or venue can afford. The essence of becoming a disciple is becoming like the people we hang out with the most just as the single most formative experience in our lives is membership in a nuclear family. So the main way we grow in grace and holiness is through involvement in the family of God. Community itself is one of the main ways we do outreach and discipleship and even experience communion with God. John Calvin, very quickly, for it is not enough that a pastor in the pulpit teach all in common if he does not also add particular instruction. Hence, Paul himself did not cease to admonish all publicly and also individually and private in their own houses. Listen to this, guys. For instruction given in common is sometimes of little service and some cannot be corrected or cured without particular medicine. Guys, this is why a lot of people don't do discipleship. It's too costly. It's too time intensive. But it's worth it. 
Okay, much faster now. Too much breath, not enough concentration. Okay, sometimes we think bigger is better. Jesus had a target group. He started with five or six men. They probably were all fishermen. Many of them were from the same hometown. Many of them were brothers. Target groups are good. They are helpful. Okay, don't try to be more spiritual than Jesus. Stack the deck in your favor. Start where it's easy with a target group. Okay. Six, too much safety, not enough multiplication. Did you notice the pattern here? Andrew met Jesus, he went and he told Peter. Philip met Jesus, he went and he told Nathaniel. Sometimes we think, you know, I've got to disciple them for a while, make sure they're a little established before I get them evangelism. No, get them out there sharing. If you lead somebody to Christ Friday morning in the food court, you ought to be saying, who are you going to tell tonight? Who are you going to tell this weekend? Get them in the game. That ought to be the way that it works. The seventh, too much of us, not enough transformation. Most of us know the famous verse, John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist again says, he, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. We can have too much of us, not enough transformation. You just saw this model with Tanya. One of the best things you can do in discipleship is don't just always put your best foot forward. Because if you do that, that's called your false foot, your fake foot. It's not real. I'm, is there a place for prudence and not sharing all your dirty laundry with the freshman you just led to Christ? Yes. In my experience, most of us err far too wide on the side of prudence. And we end up propping up some fake version. When you're struggling, be honest. When you're weak, be honest. I love the man who spoke last night. He started out on evangelism and said, let me tell you about the time I blew it. Be that way in discipleship because when you do that, part of what that helps you do is say, yeah, I'm your leader, I'm not your Lord. You're letting them see through your weakness, see the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sin to them. That's one of the things people have told me over the last two decades. The way you've talked openly and honest about your sin makes you real. It points me past you, points me to Christ. Right, follow me as I follow Christ. That's got to come out. There has to be a sense of always pointing to the risen Savior. That's got to be central in our discipleship. Too often in America, I fear, we have this unspoken mantra of never let them see you sweat. Right? Act like you have it all together. You're tough. You're missional. But I want you to think about the greatest disciple of all time. He let his three most intimate disciples literally see him sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Was he going to be faithful to do what the Lord called him to do? Absolutely. He didn't want to. He didn't like it. He was struggling. Overwhelmed to the point of death. Right? He didn't have any sin to share with them, but he had a lot of sorrow. He had a lot of struggle. And in some sense, he was hung on the cross under the wrath of God, and he bore our shame. And he really let all the world see that. That's our hope. And to the degree that we can point people to that dying and that risen Savior, that's where real transformation will happen when they are seeing his life manifest in ours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We are so grateful and thankful for your life, for your model, but even more for your death and for your saving resurrection. Make us into the men, the women, the leaders, the laborers, the ministers, the disciple makers that you want us to be for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching. Thank you.